Well, good morning again. Go ahead and take your Bibles, if you have them with you, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. That's the passage of Scripture we'll be in today. Either your Bible, or maybe you've got a device that you can look at the Bible on, and even if you don't have that, it'll be up on the screen here in just a second. So we want you to be able to follow along with us. But Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. And uh, one of the things that I, I love about Ecclesiastes is this series that we've been in has been really strong. It's been a really great look at, at, at what God has to say through us through the wisdom of King Solomon. You remember who King Solomon was? He was the wisest king to ever live. And what he did in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs is he took the time to write down some of his wisdom. And specifically in the book of Ecclesiastes, what I find fascinating about it is Solomon says, in my wisdom, I tried a lot of things. <laughs> I just tested it. I, I did this experiment. I just tried a lot of different things to see what would bring meaning and satisfaction and joy to my life. I, I tried a lot of different things, and I used wisdom to do that. And, you know, he, tr he tested popularity. He tested relationships. He tested power. He tested money. He tested uh, addiction, things like alcoholism and, and things like that. He Partying. He, he, he tried all of those things. And by Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he comes to a conclusion. And we'll talk about that verse in more detail in just a little bit. But, but that verse is really relevant because he tells us the end of the story. And the end of the story is this. He says, in conclusion, you know, at the, the end of the matter, all else has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. And, and in my life, I just have so many people who come to me on a frequent basis. Maybe it's a man and, and he's, he's struggling in his marriage or maybe it's a woman and their relationships are struggling. But, or, or maybe they're going through a job transition or, or you know, they're just, you, you look at their lives and on the outside it might appear that everything is fine. But they look at me and they say something to the extent of, you know, on the outside my life seems fine, but on the inside it feels like everything's falling apart. If everything around me is so good, why does everything inside me feel so empty? And that's exactly the question that Solomon was addressing in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's why he did all these tests, because he recognized that the reality around him didn't quite match the feeling within him. And you know, you see that all the time. You see it in celebrities who have all the popularity, all the fame, all the fortune, yet somehow they're so distraught, they're in such despair, they hurt so bad on the inside that some of them end their own lives. They take their own lives. You've had friends and possibly family members, and maybe you've experienced it, where you thought the nature of your relationship was great, and then suddenly your spouse shows up and says, this is not what I want, I'm out. And, and all of a sudden, the feeling that's in you is nothing but despair and hopelessness and it's because we've placed our faith in something other than what God tells us we've placed it in an, in an unreliable source is really what's happened we've placed our faith in something that that's not worthy of our faith being placed in and so we've called this series the dash and the reason why we've called it the dash is because from the time of your birth till the time of your death the life the life that you live in between is your dash like if you're taking a look at a gravestone how's that for morbid here's a joyful opening to a sermon today let's talk about your gravestone you know on the gravestone you've got the the date of your birth the date of your death the, and the dashes in between that's the nature of our lives is the dash is the life that we live in between and the question we've been exploring through Solomon's words in the book of Ecclesiastes is what is it what is it that makes life meaningful what is it that makes life meaningful? And he tells us the answer, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the conclusion of the matter, all else has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He tells us that conclusion. 
but the way he gets there, it, it matters. And so last week, one of the things we discussed was the nature of our relationships with one another and how the relationships we have, they reveal the maturity of our faith and they refine the quality of our faith. And, and our, my relationship with you, in my weakness, you can make me stronger. And, and in my strength, I can help you in your time of weakness. And these relationships that, they, that we have, they really do. They reveal the quality of our, or the maturity of our faith and they refine the quality of of our faith and so our relationships matter and so today we're still in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and we're gonna finish it out and we're gonna turn our face to something a little bit different than relationships the relationships that we have with one another but I'm gonna tell you the thing we're gonna talk about today is the thing that ends more relationships than anything else and I can assure you that your level of joy today is determined in part by the subject matter we're gonna talk about today the thing that we discuss today is the thing that, that ends marriages and sometimes begins them. Um, it, it decides, it, it, it is the thing, it's probably the number one thing that determines where you're living right now today. It, it's probably the number one thing that's determining who you see on a regular basis, who, who you have in your life, who you spend 40 hours a week with. It's probably the thing that's determining that more than anything else. So we're going to see that inside Ecclesiastes, and we're going to see it from the perspective of a man who had everything. Okay, Solomon was the king who, who did more for the nation of Israel than any other king in his, in his time. He had more. He protected the nation better, and, his, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the edges of his kingdom were larger than at any other time in the history of Israel. And so we're going to see that this one thing, this thing that he'll talk about today, he was an expert at talking about. Now, before we read the passage, which we're going to get to in just a second, I want to make a, just a note that this book is an incredible book. The Bible is an incredible book. And it reveals incredible truth. And there are moments when the Bible makes scientific statements. But I want you to understand that, that the Bible isn't really designed to be a book of science. But in spite of the fact that it's not designed to be a book of science, when it makes financial or when it makes um, scientific statements, those, those statements are accurate. This book is not designed to be a financial book, a book of finances. But when it makes financial statements, its statements are accurate and they're trustworthy. There's a lot of history in this book, a lot of history you can read in this book. But it's not really written simply to be a history book. It's written to be more than that. But when it makes historical statements, those statements are accurate. And so we're going to see some things today that may feel like, well, what has the Bible even got to do with that? Why is it talking about that? Well, it's talking about that because it's relevant to our relationship with God and one another. It's relevant to this dash that we're living. And it is that number one source of joy or despair for many, many people, and maybe even for you. So with that in mind, let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Go ahead and stand with me if you would. One of the practices that we have here is we like to honor the reading of God's word, to reflect on the idea that this isn't my opinion, that these words aren't my words, these are God's words, and so we'll stand in honor of what God has to say to us. At the end of it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll repeat after me, you'll say, praise be to God, so that we can again honor the fact that this is the word of God. So we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 8 is where we're going to begin. We're going to read the rest of the chapter. Here's what it says. It says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. 
a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full, uh, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is grievous evil. Just as he came, so, he, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all, this, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thanks so much. You can be seated. So one of the things that, that I just believe is true, and I believe it because I've seen it. I've seen it time and time and time again, that this subject matter, the subject matter that this passage of Scripture talks about, is the thing that, that sometimes ends marriages. It is the thing that sometimes causes families to fall apart. It is one of the things that sometimes cause, causes tension inside a church or inside a business. It's the thing that, that, to a large degree, is determined where you're living and how you're living. And that thing is money. It's the view of money. You saw it inside this passage. And so before you get nervous, I'm not preaching this because the church needs your money. That's not the reason why I'm preaching it. We have a systematic process for going through Scripture. We were in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, the beginning of it last week. We were in chapter 4 before that. Today we're in chapter 5, and we're just where God has us inside this. And when I say the church doesn't need your money, what I really mean by that is it's not about the church needing your money, but there is a principle that I hope we'll catch. And it's this idea that we, as believers... We need to learn to give. That's just a great habit for us to be in because you notice at the very end of the passage, it says that, uh, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And that occupancy with joy, having joy alive in your heart, it comes from generous living. And you can't be a generous liver if you're not a generous giver. It's just not possible. And so today, we're going to see several principles from this passage that help us understand that role of money in our lives and how we view it and how we think about it. So during your dash, there's some important things that I want us to see specifically about money. The first thing is this, that your view of money reveals the object of your faith. Your view of money reveals the object of your faith. I've seen people who are incredibly poor be miserable because they don't have any money. 
And I've seen people who are incredibly wealthy be completely miserable because they've got so much money and the money gets in the way. I've seen poor people filled with joy who have absolutely nothing. And I've seen rich people who are filled with joy because they're using the wealth that God's given them properly and appropriately. There's a neighborhood in Owasso, it's called Stone Canyon. And actually, there's a neighborhood that's even better that, than that one in, in, in Owasso called Clearbrook. In Clearbrook, the, just the land that the houses sit on starts at about $150,000 just for the land. So before they, before they put a house on the property, the land by itself, and it's a storybook, uh, storybook kind of setting. You know, you can go there and take pictures, and it just looks like you're in some part of Disney World. It's kind of what it looks like. It's an amazing neighborhood. The homes are massive, and they're multi-million dollar homes. And when I've driven through that neighborhood, when I drive through that neighborhood, I'm never more aware of how little I have <laughs> than when I look around in that neighborhood. I'm just never more aware of how little I have. But there's also something else that's true. I've been on a mission trip in Mexico, right on the border of Mexico. And one of the things we did on that mission trip is we would have a carnival in kind of in the plaza. We would tell people about Jesus, but we would also build houses for people. Now, the government had kindly donated some land to some very poor people that we could build these houses on, and the land was the trash dump. So it was the place where everyone in the city went to, to dump their trash. They donated land to the people to live there, and then we were coming in to build houses on it. Now, the houses we built were 12 foot by 16 foot. Here, we would call them a shed. 12 foot by six foot, 16 foot, not terribly larger than this, this area that I'm standing on right now, not much larger than that area, just the small part of the stage area. Wood, wooden house, we, we put a concrete floor and a metal roof on it. They would oftentimes have eight and 10 and 15 people living inside that 12 by 16 shed that we built for them. And, and it was amazing the joy they had and the excitement they had because they had a place to live. And it was incredible and I was standing there on that trash dump in Mexico. And you know, in Clearbrook, where there's multi-million dollar homes, I'm never more aware of how little I have when I'm looking at those homes. But there I was in Mexico, standing on that trash dump, looking at the, the appreciation of these people who had so little, and I had so much. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm never more aware of how much I have than when I'm standing surrounded by conditions like that. You know, our view of money, our view of money reveals the object of, of our faith. It does. It reveals the object of our faith, but it does more than that. Your use of money can refine the quality of your faith. Your use of money, the way you use money can refine the quality of your faith. Either you use it for a purpose that, that benefits you, that benefits your family, that benefits your friends, that benefits the one you love, the ones you love, that benefits the kingdom of God, or you use it very selfishly and very enviously. And so what we're going to see as we go just kind of pick apart this passage is we're going to see really uh, four approaches to money. That's what we're going to see today is four approaches to money. And inside these four approaches, you're really going to see only one of them that works. There's only one approach to money that, that really works. And so look at me or look with me uh, at, uh, well, before we do that, look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. And we're just going to see another passage of scripture that talks about this very similar idea. Matthew chapter 6, verses uh, nine, 19 through 24, they say this. It says, uh, and, and this is in regards to our attitude towards money. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust 
destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, your view of money reveals the object of your faith and your use of money refines the quality of your faith. Verse 22 says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Now I'm gonna pause you right there. Okay, he was just talking about money, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. And now he's talking about how we look at things, the, the lamp, and it sounds like he's changed subjects, but he really hasn't. He's actually saying how you view money matters. It reveals the object of your faith and how you use it can refine the quality of your faith. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And here's how I know he's still talking about money because you get to verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You simply can't do it. And so the passage here, and, and what we'll see in Ecclesiastes, four different approaches to money, and of the four, only one of them will work. And I guarantee you, as I describe these four different approaches, you're in one of them right now. You're in one of these four approaches right now. It's exactly how, how God designed our world to work. And like I said, while this may not be a book of finances, when it speaks financially, it's financially accurate. So turn back with me again to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we'll see that first approach. The first approach, it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 uh, and 11, it says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So here's the first approach. The first approach is the idea that control, control produces suffering. That's the very first idea. The very first approach is I can can all I get and get all I can and sit on the lid. <laughs> I can do my best to control every, every dollar that comes in and every dollar that goes out. I've actually seen that kind of approach destroy nations. Control, oppression, it always produces suffering right now in the nation of Venezuela. That nation is falling apart. And it's falling apart because economically, the leader in that nation has tried to exert oppression. He's been oppressive. He's tried to control the finances and the income of that nation so tightly that all that's left in that nation is suffering. You see it in third world countries all the time. A warlord rises up or a dictator takes over, takes power, and through control, he's trying to control people. He's trying to control relationships. He tries to control the, the military. He's trying to control money. And, in, and the end result is always the same. The economy collapses. The country falls and people suffer and you can do this in your own family you can do this in your own life you can be the husband that has such a tight grip on the finances that the wife feels like mm, she has to sneak around your back in order to get something done and you can destroy the trust that that relationship has you could be the wife that has such control over the finances that every little expense that your husband has for lunch on a Tuesday afternoon becomes the source of an argument on Tuesday night. You can do that. That kind of control. That, do you, should we manage our, our finances wisely? Absolutely. Should we live appropriately? appropriately? Sh sure we should. Should we do that? But that level of control, that level of control shows us that money has us. We don't have money. You see how that works? Control in our lives 
produces suffering. So maybe that's you. And what I've found in all of our relationships, and this is just true for people, whether it's kids and the parents or whether it's a husband and a wife, in every relationship, there's the one who likes to spend more and there's the one who likes to save more, right? And so you're constantly managing that tension of the one who wants to spend versus the one who wants to save. I always joke about me and Londa because Londa and I, our view of money is so similar. Londa's my wife. Our view of money is so similar. Until we had kids... And now, all of a sudden, our view of money is very different because I'm still in that, I still get in that control mode. I still want to be careful what we spend. I'm still a saver. But when it comes to the kids, we can sell the farm to, to, to pay for the kids. If they want ice cream, we're getting ice cream. You know, it's just one of those things where suddenly our view of what's, save, what's worth saving for and what's worth spending on becomes very different. And it becomes a source of tension inside our relationship. She needs to learn to save a little more. I need to learn to spend a little more. And that's one of those beautiful ways in that tension that God helps complete me through my wife and helps complete her through me. We can manage those conversations well, but if I'm the one who's always going control, control, college is coming, cars are coming, we've got to save, we've got to save, we can't ever spend. If I'm trying to control every bit of it, all I'm really doing is using that tension to destroy my relationship with my kids and with my wife. Living appropriately is right, but that level of control only produces suffering. That's one approach. Maybe that's you. Let's look at another approach. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14 say, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. You see, the next idea is envy. Envy produces emptiness. We can look around and, and just always see that somebody's always got more than I do. Isn't that right? Somebody's, there's always more to me. And you know, as soon as, I get, as soon as I get enough, I realize that enough is just never enough. And so I can go out and try to get more. And I can spend my life envying everything that I don't have because enough will never, ever be enough. I don't know if you've realized that or not, but enough will never, ever be enough. I got to do a Disciple Now weekend, which is kind of an in-house retreat for a friend of mine in Champion Forest Baptist Church in, uh, in Houston, Texas. It was such a fun, fun weekend because it's a great church, and I, I got to stay in the home with someone, and this was a long time ago. I was, I was a lot younger then, and Londa and I were living in a house that was about an 800, 900-square-foot home. We had just gotten married, and so uh, we didn't even have, this was awesome, we had the bedroom suit that Londa had grown up with, and I had an old, old recliner that I had taken, a single-person recliner that I'd taken with me to college. That's what we had in our living room for furniture. We had the one recliner. We were newly married, and that was enough, right? And so that's all we had was that one recliner in, in eight or 900-square-foot house. Well, I go to Champion Forest to do this Disciple Now weekend, and the place where I got to stay is someone's home, and this home is about 10,000 square feet huge home. There's about 30 kids who are going to sp come spend the night all weekend long in this 10,000 square foot home. It's awesome. What an incredible home. I walk into the garage and there's a, you know, brand new Beamer and a brand new Mercedes sitting side by side. And I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome. What a great place to stay. And one of the things that happens during Disciple Now weekend is uh, you'll get to know the host homes. So the people who own the home were there and they've got a list of all the kids who are coming. And before, they, before the students get there, they, they kind of were trying to fill me in on this, this person's like this and she's a cheerleader and he plays in the band and here's a football guy. She's just kind of giving me the rundown 
on who these kids are and kind of what, what's relevant about, about their lives so I could get to know them a little bit. And she gets to this one guy and she points to, she looks up at him and she goes, now, now this boy, his family's wealthy. And I'm looking around at this 10,000 square foot house. I'm living in a 900, 800, 900 square foot home with one recliner in my living room and I'm going, clearly wealth is relative, right? You know, this is, there's still, this is not, wow, right? You know, envy produces emptiness. You know why? Because enough, it'll never, ever be enough. I'm going to ask a question that might be controversial. How much is a life worth? How much are you willing to sell your kids for? How much are you willing to buy someone for? I'm not going to go here other than to ask the question, but isn't that, isn't that a pro-choice, pro-life kind of question? Pro-choice, pro-life? How much... What's the value of a life financially? You see, I think every one of us in here would be offended at the idea that we would sell someone. I think we would all be offended at the idea that we would sell ourselves to someone else. But I see relationships fall apart every day for the price of one more hour at work, for the price of a 50-hour or a 60-hour or a 70-hour work week and we're working that hard, we think it's for the sake of our family, but it's because enough is really just never, ever enough. And in my emptiness, I try to fill it with one more hour of productive activity that's going to get me one more hour added to my paycheck and one more, one more hour added to my... And all of a sudden, I show up at home and my kids don't know me anymore and my wife's mad at me and I don't know why. And it's because I've sold my family. Because enough is never enough. You see, control produces suffering and envy. It produces emptiness. There's another approach. The other approach, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we're going to look at two verses, verses 9 and verse 18. Verse 9 says, if you see, excuse me, that's verse 8. Verse 9 says, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king who's committed to cultivated fields. And then in verse 18, verse 18 says, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. He some, sometimes with our finances, sometimes with our money, what we choose to do is instead of control and instead of envy, we choose to isolate ourselves. And this is all for me. This is all mine. I'm not going to give it away. I'm not going to spend it. I'm not going to sell it. I'm not going to do anything. This is all for me, and I don't have anyone to share it with. The best example of this I know is Scrooge. You remember Ebenezer Scrooge from A Christmas Carol? He had everything, and he was making money hand over, his, over fist, but he had no one to share it with. Why? Well, because he lived his life in isolation. Isolation always produces hopelessness. It always does. Isolation always produces hopelessness. Control produces suffering. Envy produces emptiness. Isolation produces hopelessness. And isn't that the story of Scrooge? I mean, that's, that's his whole story. It's, it takes a visitation by three spirits, four spirits, to, to convince him that one of these days you're going to die and all this wealth that you've got is going to mean absolutely nothing because you've just isolated yourself from everyone else. And you've just said, this is all mine and nobody else's. I'm not giving this away. I'm not using this for anyone but me and me alone. And you know what it does? It's going to produce in you hopelessness. Where's that joy that the end of this passage talked about? Where, where could that possibly come from? 
Well, that's Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For surely this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's the fourth approach. Managing money God's way produces joy. That's the fourth approach. Managing money God's way produces joy. So I've identified kind of the challenge. We, when we approach money, we approach it oftentimes from control, which produces suffering, from envy, which produces emptiness, and then from isolation, which produces, uh, which produces hopelessness. But if, if managing money God's way, if that produces joy, then how do we do that? How do we manage money God's way? I'm going to give you three simple principles, and then I'm going to illustrate them. Here's the three simple principles. Give generously, save wisely, live appropriately. Give generously, save wisely, live appropriately. Say that with me. Say, give generously, save wisely, live appropriately. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, we're so committed to this idea and we see the damage that's done in relationships and families and churches and in communities because people have such an unusual view of money. Money has such a, a strong control of them. We, we want to break that control in our lives. We want us to grow up financially. We need to mature financially and spiritually. And so you've heard about it already in the, uh, in, in the, in the video, but there is a money, or there's a, a book out here called The Money Challenge. Really thin, really simple book. It's actually designed to be read over 30 days. It's a 30-day challenge. It took me about an hour to read the entire thing. This book actually outlines that principle of giving generously, saving wisely, and living appropriately. The book's going to be available out in the foyer, and it's free. We'd like to invite one person per family to take that, and so we'd like to give it to you for free. It's a real simple, real easy read that helps, that helps us understand what it means to give generously, to save wisely, and to live appropriately. Now, I want to illustrate that just a little bit before we, before we wrap the service up today. I know a lot of us will say, I can't afford to give generously and save wisely, and I don't even know what live appropriately means. Well, let me challenge you with an idea. Everything you have, no matter how much or no matter how little, everything you have has its source in God. He's the one who gave it to you first. And so here's the challenge. It's a simple challenge. It's not easy to do, but it's simple to say, and, 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 and it is the right, it's the right approach. Start. Start somewhere. Give generously. How do I give generously? I don't even know if I have the money to give. Do I even, can I even afford to give generously? How would I do that? Well, let me, let me illustrate it for you for just a second. What I have right here is 10 $1 bills. So let's just imagine I made $10 at work today. So I've got these 10 $1 bills. If I don't have a plan for how these $10 bills, 10 $1 bills, if I don't have a plan for how there's going, they're going to be used, the end result is not that they're going to end up in my pocket. The end result is that they're going to end up somewhere else. I'm going to spill it. I'm going to spill it on the bills that I already owe. I'm going to spill it on that drink that I want to get at Starbucks. I'm going to spill it on the fact that my kids wanted to go see Godzilla yesterday, so we went to do that. Um, I'm going to spill it on popcorn that's way overpriced. I'm going to spill it, and all of a sudden, I'm going to have absolutely nothing left. But if I start today with this idea that this money... Well, here's also... It's an interesting fact about the power of money. How much is this worth? It's not a trick question. How much is this worth? A dollar. Why is it worth a dollar? Because you believe it. 
because you believe it's worth a dollar. When I was, when I first got my driver's license, when I first got my driver's license, this, based on the belief of a nation, would buy a gallon of gas. Actually, it would buy a little bit more than a gallon of gas because that's what we believed, right? This is the power that, that money has over us because of the way we believe. Remember I said at the very beginning that, that your view of money reveals the object of your faith? I believed it would buy me a little more than a gallon of gas. Today, it takes a little closer to this to buy a gallon of gas. And you know why? Well, because you believe it. Because I believe it. When I go to the tank, when I go to the pump, I, I fill up my tank and they ask me for about this for one gallon. You see how money, the belief that we have in money can create such a way of thinking for us? And so if God's given me this money because he gave me the ability to work, and so I worked for it, I earned 10 bucks in an hour. Let's say I earned 10 bucks in an hour. If I don't have a plan for this money, then it's just, I'm just going to spill it. And so here's what, I, here's what giving generously, saving wisely, and living appropriately means. Here's what it means. It's really, really simple. It means that God says, I should be ready, willing, and able to give generously to someone around me. Maybe it's to the church. Maybe it's to someone who has a need. There's a thousand different targets for your, for your offerings. I hope that you recognize that this church is a great place to give because we're helping people and we're sharing the gospel with folks. But there really are a thousand other things and people you can give to in ministry. And I would suggest that God is the one who designates where it is the target of our gift. And, and so just to honor God's economy, to honor the fact that God gave me all of this in the first place, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take this first one and I'm just going to set it aside. I'm going to say, God, that's for you. I'm not exactly sure how you want me to use it yet. Maybe you want me to give it to my church. Maybe you want me to do something different with it. But, but before I do anything else with this, I'm just going to take one and I'm just going to set it aside. God, that one's, tell me, how to, tell me how to spend that one, not on me. Tell me how to spend that on something selfless, on someone else. Maybe to my church, maybe somewhere else. But tell me how to do it. I'm setting that aside for that. That's the giving generously. I've made a plan. It's disciplined. I'm going to do it as soon as I receive the $10. That's my discipline. I'm going to give my first and my best. It's also a percentage. It, it represents 10%. Maybe you're not giving 10% now. We'll start somewhere. Maybe for the next three months, give 1% of your total gross income to somewhere else. Just give it away. And, and then in the next three months, raise that up to 3%. And then in the next three months, raise it up to 5 And then to 7 And then by the end of the year, you'd be giving 10% away of every $10 that you get. You'd just be giving it away. So that's what I'm going to do with the first ten, uh, with the first with the first dollar. I've, I've been God gave me ten dollars. He gave me money. So I'm going to take a percentage, and with discipline, every time I get ten more dollars, I'm going to take another dollar. I'm going to set it aside, and then I'm setting it aside specifically to give it away, to give it away for something that builds the kingdom of God. That's what I'm doing. I'm giving this away to build the kingdom of God. You know what I'm going to do with my next dollar? This next one, I'm going to set it aside too. Because you know what my life has proven? And your life has proven this too. I go through seasons of plenty and seasons of scarcity. There are times in my life when I have a lot. But then there are times in my life when I can't seem to make nearly enough. And I need to recognize that that pattern, that ebb and flow of the ups and downs of my money, of my finances, that's going to happen. It's, it, there's no way around it. There's going to be seasons in my life where I have more, and there's going to be seasons of my life when I need more. And to just honor the fact that that's the natural rhythm, the natural flow of life, I'm going to take another dollar, and I'm going to set it aside. And I'm going to save that because right now I'm in a season of plenty. I'm going to save that for my season of scarcity. 
in that season when I don't have enough, this is in a bank account somewhere. It's under a mattress somewhere. It's been invested wisely somewhere so that in that moment when the need comes, I don't have to go take out a loan. I can reach in and go, hey, look, God provided for me in the past so that he could provide for me today. And today, today, I can meet that need because I had a plan. I've given generously. I'm saving wisely. And now you know what I get to do with this? I get to live appropriately. I get to live in a way, I get to manage these dollars in a way so that I don't live beyond the eighth. Because if my, if my Starbucks coffee costs $9, guess what? I can't afford it, right? Because I've only got eight, right? So I need to get something else. Maybe there's actually a book called The Millionaire Next Door. And one of the chapters in that book is The Millionaire Next Door Drinks Water for Lunch is the name of one of the chapters. It's a great book. But it's this idea that I'm going to live within my means. I'm going to be satisfied with what God has given me. And, and I'm going to use it for his glory and for his purpose. I'm going to live appropriately by managing well what God has given me. And I'm going to be, and I'm gonna ma- as I manage it well, I'm going to manage it for a kingdom purpose rather than for a selfish pur- purpose. And so God gives me 10. He gives me 10 because he gave me the ability to work. And then as I work, I get the 10. Maybe it's for an hour. First thing I do with it, I set aside one to, to give away. I set aside one because today is the day of prosperity, but tomorrow might be the day of need, and I want to be ready for that. And with this, with the rest of this, I live appropriately. I live within my means. Now, I know that's hard. I know that money has such a hold in our life because, you know, we believe this paper has value, right? We believe it'll buy, well, 20 years ago, a tank of gas or at least a gallon of gas, but not today. It'll buy less because we believe different things about it. What we believe about money changes when we start viewing money through God's eyes. When we start recognizing that I can give generously, I can save wisely, and I can live appropriately. When we submit ourselves to him, it's amazing what happens in our lives. Not just with our money, but with our entire lives. You know, when we take that $1 and we all pool it together because this is our church and as members of our church, we want to use the resources. God's called us to a particular ministry here together. And I believe that what God does is first he provides for his people, that'd be you and me. And then we together provide faithfully for the work that he's called us to do get together. You know what happens? Ministries like the mission are born. It's a $2 million project. And you all did that. You did that. We have people right now in Teesside, Stockton on Tees, in England, on the mission field, sharing the gospel with people. And some of them are there because of the help financially that you gave, that you provided. We're able to go places we've never been before and do things we've never done before in order to share the gospel with people we've not yet met. And we're able to do that because somebody in this congregation gave generously. They set aside the one they saved the one, and they're living appropriately on the, west, on, on the rest. And you can be a part of that. And so today, we're going to take a moment that we call an invitation. It's an opportunity to respond to the message that God had for us today. Today's message was specifically about an area of our lives that we put a lot of faith in. We put a lot of faith in what money we have or what work we're doing for that. And here's the, here's the way the invitation is going to flow for us today. I'm going to invite you to two things. Here's the two things I want to invite you to do. First off, I want you to recognize that living appropriately isn't simply a financial statement. 
if my faith is not in Jesus Christ, then everything else about my life will be out of balance. Those approaches to money are exactly the same, same as the way some people approach relationships. Some people try to approach their relationships through control, some through envy, some through isolation. But when we manage our relationships God's way, suddenly our relationships are forever different. And it begins with the relationship that matters most. Your relationship with your heavenly father, with God himself, is broken. It's broken because of sin, because of the wrong things we've done, because of the temptations that we've given into. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ came and he paid the penalty for our sin. He actually paid the debt for your sin and mine. And now if we trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, we'll be forgiven forever. We'll have a right relationship with God and we'll be able to walk with him forever. See, that's the first part of the invitation. If you need to live appropriately, the first, first step is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. For the rest of us, the invitation is really simple. Let's get our money right. Let's figure out how to give generously, to save wisely, and to, and to live appropriately. And if you don't know how to do that, we've got people and resources to help you with it. Because that's exactly what this scripture teaches that we should do. To give generously, to save wisely, and to live appropriately. So maybe during this invitation, this is a moment for you to just be on your knees before your heavenly father. Maybe to quietly, right where you are, just say, God, I've been doing it wrong, help me. I don't know where to start, but maybe I'll pick up that book and that'd be a great place for me to start. But submit yourself to your heavenly father and recognize that what God wants from you, <laughs> what God wants from you is far different than what God has for you. So surrender your life to him, not just a piece of it, but all of it. Let's pray together.